Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Big Bout Podcast. This is John Suntress. I am also releasing this episode on the Word Balloon feed because I'm still letting people know that uh, as much as I cover pop culture, I am back covering boxing as well. It's a sport that I covered from 1989 till 2006, and I took a bit of a break, a little more than 10 years, and uh, am back now because I think the sport is exciting again. Lots of interesting things are happening. Great guest for you today, Bill Detloff, who is the editor-in-chief of Ringside Seat, a great new boxing magazine that uh, does great coverage of both uh, the modern sport and also classic bouts, and I'm a huge fan. Bill also wrote an incredible biography of Ezra Charles a few years ago, and he used to write for Ring Magazine and HBO's website, uh, but uh, has a great editorial point of view, and really excited to talk to him today about uh, not only uh, the current scene, but some uh, old, old fights as well, recent past and uh, way back as well. So it's uh, great to talk to Bill Detloff on today's Big Bout podcast. Just a few uh, notes regarding some news. Man, we're almost in a 24-7 boxing news cycle, which is pretty amazing. Something I'm really not used to. But uh, let's rattle off some of the new uh, obvious headlines from the last couple weeks. Canelo signing with DAZN. It shows where the new powers in boxing are. Uh, HBO going away from boxing after 45 years. The writing was on the wall. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend on ESPN Plus uh, Dan Rathel's conversation with Bob Arum. And uh, Bob really cut to the heart of the matter, which is HBO is in competition with Netflix. And the cost of sports and the amount of subscribers interested in uh, getting live sporting events from HBO, those numbers have been dwindling for, for several years. So, again, it's something that we talk about uh, with Bill, but uh, I can't say I'm surprised. I'm disappointed. I mean, 43 years, good Lord. I mean, I remember in the early 70s when they were covering um, – the fight with uh, Joe Frazier and George Foreman, and of course in '75, the thrill in Manila. And uh, as as Bill points out, boxing on HBO, uh, there was a real journalistic kind of uh, attitude about the coverage of the sport that seems to have gone away. Again, I point to the coming conversation in this episode with Bill Detloff as we get into that a bit more. Uh, Manny Pacquiao sounds with uh, Al Heyman in Premier Boxing. He's going to fight Adrian Bronner. It looks like in January. Uh, I'm not surprised. I'm shocked at the IRS debt that uh, Manny Pacquiao currently has. And signing with a guy like Al Heyman will guarantee him big numbers and, and big fights. I think Adrian Bronner is a, a good uh, opponent from a marquee standpoint. Um, but also, uh, I hope uh, he gets himself out of the hole. I, I, I really think Manny Pacquiao has, in a lot of ways, become the Sugar Ray Robinson of the 21st century. You can make uh, comparisons to Joe Lewis with his IRS situation, but Manny's young enough to still kind of take care of things. And it reminds me of when Ray Robinson in the 50s came back to boxing reluctantly because uh, he wasn't making money as an entertainer and uh, had to fight for the IBC and uh, suddenly wasn't in the power position he once was in his prime. So I hope it works out for Manny, and I hope it means we have a lot of great fights coming up. As far as this past weekend, wow. Four cards in one day. Could not believe it. Between DAZN and ESPN Plus, all over the place. Um, I just want to point out the, the two big fights. Um, Andrade versus uh, Dukwa, I thought was uh, kind of interesting. Obviously, we didn't get Billy Joe Saunders, but uh, you have to hand it to Kautanduqua for uh, sticking in the fight. I mean, God, he was down four times in the first four rounds, still managed to get to 12 rounds. And Andrade, well, he's got a belt now. So he's got a bigger bigger bargaining chip to uh, entice other middleweights. 
we'll see what happens. And then, God, uh, Murata versus Brandt. Wow. You know, I, I am still kind of dwelling on the boxing decisions uh, that happened uh, with uh, Canelo and Triple G in both fights, but certainly uh, the majority decision last time in a fight that clearly at best was a draw. Uh, if you want to be generous to Canelo, I really thought Triple G won, and I've covered that in uh, previous conversations. Again, something that Bill and I talk about in this conversation. But uh, I got to hand it to the Vegas uh, judges for calling a fight properly, and that might sound surprising. But, you know, it really does kind of seem like uh, house fighters are getting their way on a lot of decisions. And Murata certainly uh, had everything going from him from a marquee standpoint. His large audience in Japan uh, makes him a very attractive opponent for Triple G, Canelo, any other name uh, middleweights. Because you can immediately make bank with the Japanese market in addition to pay-per-view of um, buys or whatever on this side of the pond. But... Um, you know, God, Brandt really came to fight Eddie Mustafa Muhammad in his corner and out-hustled Murata, never really got things going. More competitive than I think the judges had it. I think they were leaning too hard on Brandt. I think Murata won a few more rounds than uh, the judges gave him credit. But still, Brandt wins, and now we got this, you know, Minnesota middleweight that uh, is out there for, you know, the same guys now, the Triple Gs and the like. And it'll be very interesting. Styles make fights. And we didn't get much style. From Murata, too straight up, too straightforward. Um, you know, kind of let those first early rounds slip away, which I think you know resulted in uh, Brant winning the fight. But here we are, man. We got a we got a new player in the middleweight division to worry about, and it's interesting because I'm sure Murata's marquee value in Japan will still figure in a couple big fights. You know, I, I'm I'm guessing he might go to Japan, back to Japan, and have an easy one or two fights before attempting to entice a Triple G. Maybe not. Maybe right now is still the time for, uh, you know, a guy like Golovkin to uh, go over there and fight Murata. It'll be very interesting to see what Murata's next moves are after this loss to Brandt. So there you go. That's a few thoughts on the current scene. And uh, I promise you we'll uh, come on a more regular basis moving forward. It was a really tough October for me in terms of getting a new episode out there. But uh, very excited about the conversation today. Bill Detloff. I still have great uh, classic conversations that I had in my uh, sporting news radio days when I put together a couple documentaries for that network. And I've got the raw interviews. I'll be bringing those to you in the weeks ahead. Bud Schulberg, Max Baer Jr., some great conversations with Bert Sugar over the years, my dear friend. But also uh, another great Chicago boxing expert and a guy that uh, has really seen a lot from uh, the 60s all the way to the modern era. And that's my buddy Chet Kopik, an excellent uh, all-around sportscaster and sports host. But uh, loves his boxing. Always enjoyed working with him for years at uh, The Loop in Chicago and Sporting News Radio nationally. So it's great to get uh, Chet on the phone to have a new conversation about boxing. And that'll be coming as well in the days ahead. But right now, let's uh, switch things up and talk to Ringside Seats Bill Detloff. Great to get his uh, perspective on the current scene. Now, we recorded this before the big weekend of boxing. So unfortunately, you're not going to hear any talk about Murata or Andrade or some of the other fights that have been happening. But... Uh, I think uh, we give you a good sense of the game in general today. Some of my frustrations, I look to Bill for insight because uh, I feel like I'm uh, just getting my feet wet, getting back into the game. I'm, I'm a fan, and I certainly think I know my boxing history, but uh, I am a student of the current scene and am uh, wide open to hear uh, the people with good points of view, and they can guide me on their thoughts. But we, we talk about Wilder and Tyson Fury coming up 
and uh, a lot of other things as well. And again, certainly one of the big things, and it was really one of the highlights of the recent issue of Ringside Seat, uh, that uh, Canelo Triple G decision. And uh, Nigel Collins wrote an excellent piece in there that we talk about, and Bill himself had a good editorial as well. Ringside Seat, an excellent digital magazine. Uh, you got to get it. It's fantastic. They've also correct, collected uh, some of their best stories in a big book volume that has already come out as well. So it's a great buy. It's $10 a month. Uh, Mike Cronenberg, the associate editor, does a beautiful job in terms of the design of the magazine. It's eye-catching, and beyond the visual eye-catching, the content is incredible. they got Wally Matthews writing for them, a lot of the old uh, Ring Magazine people like Eric Ratliff and Nigel Collins, as I said. So uh, it's wonderful to talk to Bill Detloff about Ringside Seat. Here he is now on the Big Bout Podcast. Bill Detloff, I'm going to get familiar with you, Bill, and call you Bill instead of William. But welcome to uh, the Big Bout Podcast and Word Balloon. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And I've, uh, I've been enjoying your work, both uh, your biography of Ezra Charles and also Ringside Seat. Congratulations. Thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to get an independent voice in boxing right now because I think with the few established columnists, they're getting harder to find. And uh, in your fifth issue... You guys talk about the Canelo Alvarez, uh, Gennady Golovkin rematch, mm-hmm. and uh, man, I'll tell you, both your um, intro essay and Nigel Collins' column about the fight could not agree more. Or at least here, let me let me get what my inference is that okay. um, the house announcers have never been more house announcers, and it seems like objectivity when calling fights is starting to slip, or if, again, naivete, I'm going to say starting to slip away, maybe it's been happening for years and I just wasn't paying attention. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the compliments uh, regarding um, my uh, intro and Nigel's great feature um, about the uh, Canelo uh, um, Golovkin rematch. Yeah, uh, like so many other things, and which I wrote about uh, in my intro also, uh, everybody's... Uh, Every company has to make billions of dollars on everything these days. It seems to me, just as an outsider who's never going to make billions of dollars, <laughs> it seems that uh, every effort is um, drawn to make everybody a billionaire at the, at the very top of the food chains, right? And so toward that end, uh, it's not enough for broadcasters these days just to call the action. They have to sell the action. They have to make it dramatic and make it more than it is. And and uh, most of all, it's terribly important to the suits who run boxing networks and and who run most things um that the guy uh with the contract with that network uh, is made to seem special and extraordinary and and that can change in terms of uh, from one fight to the next nigel mentioned in his column in his feature rather that the first time hbo um uh, the, called the first fight, it seemed like they're, uh, they were very overly favorable to uh, Golovkin. And in the rematch, uh, they were overly favorable to uh, Canelo in terms of their uh, broadcast. Um, so it can change from fight to fight depending on where they see, uh, on which side of, uh, of the bread their butter appears. Okay? <laughs> uh, so HBO, um, which at one time was a great, great journalistic uh symbol in boxing it seems at the time at least um really uh became the symbol for how awful and commercialized uh sports uh broadcasting is at least in boxing i should say boxing broadcasting because frankly i don't watch enough sports to say how it is in other sports but certainly in boxing broadcasting is just terrible just terrible well and again i think um other sports have that support of a league 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and 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 there's a little more objectivity, even though um, it is standard for the teams to hire the announcers for the TV sure. network. They are paid right. by the teams, so there's always a bit of homerism sure. going on in yep. sports. But again, um, what drove me nuts about the Triple G Canelo fight was. Uh, I, I and, and I don't mean to pick on him, but I think Max Kellerman <laughs> is suffering from Tim McCarver disease. It's a little different than Lou Gehrig's disease, where <laughs> you know you you just have been doing this so long that you pontificate and and really and also there was a prepared um, delivery, you know that whole thing of he's 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 winning the story. Can he win the fight? And I've seen uh, Max defend what he was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm shrugging, and I got to say sorry. And it's something that Nigel said, and it's just very obvious. Call the fight in front of you. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's fine to in the in the preamble, and and as we're leading up to the yep. fight, he's won the story. Can he win the fight? That's fine. But once that bell rings for round one, okay, it's it's you know developing in front of you. Call the fight, and really, I uh, I like uh, Nigel had it uh, for Triple G. I even had it a little further. I had it one sixteen, one twelve, I believe. And um, I thought it was uh, I, 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 I could see three or four rounds where I really had to, like, struggle to, like, declare a winner so I can appreciate it being such a close fight. Mm-hmm. But it's these unsatisfying decisions. And I've also seen that it seems like the majority of uh, journalists out there either had it for Triple G or had it as a draw. Yeah. And to make the case for Canelo, I think you really have to struggle that final r- round where I think all three judges had it for Canelo. It's like, really? Come on, man. And again, I just feel like the the uh, the broadcast, Roy Jones, f- great fighter, horrible analyst. I'm sorry. <laughs> it goes whichever way the wind is blowing. And uh, my God, I honestly, I, I miss George Foreman. And it's so funny because I bet if you were to talk to Roy, much as if you were able to get George off camera and have a conversation with him, they know what they're talking about. They're great analysts. And it's like, okay, where's that guy on camera? And I asked George Foreman that. And I'm like, God, because we were talking about Eric Morales. Again, this is, mm-hmm. you know, over a decade ago. And I'm like, hey, man, this is great. How come you don't do this on camera? He's like, hey, I'm there to be the clown. He goes, they got Larry. They got Jim. You know, that's my role. I don't know what Roy's answer would be. Huh. But, yeah, it was interesting. It was very interesting. But, yeah, man, it's just, again, yeah, it's that whole idea of just the the simplicity of, okay, it's happening in front of you. Again, football, baseball, any sport, the game is happening in front of you, and most of these guys are able to, uh, sportscasters, just you know, call the game. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, the main thing is um, just call the fight. Uh, and even that's redundant, right, because we can see the action. You know, there's a reason that uh, Don Dunphy did it alone all those years. Yes. In the 40s, right, because <laughs> – it's not on radio. We can see what's happening. But okay, I guess we need a couple of guys. And Howard Cosell, too, often maybe he had uh, partners occasionally. But he often did fights by himself, right, mm-hmm. in the 70s. Um, but we can see the action. So, yeah, okay, maybe we have an, an expert analyst in there who uh, who points out, um, you know, uh, from a tr- strategic perspective, some of the finer points of what's going on to those who don't know it or haven't been, have never yeah. fought. So that's cool. Uh, so just call the fight then and stop telling us how great one guy is because uh, that's that's what it came to um, essentially with every HBO fighter, every HBO um, A-side was, in my mind, those guys telling us how great this guy is. 
oh, look how he did that. Look how he does this. And isn't that wonderful? And and not even mention the other guy. And that's just, that's just not it. And interestingly, and why, and why it was so obvious to so many of us that it was just completely contrived is um, when those guys called a fight uh, where neither guy, typically on an undercard, on an undercard, right, where neither guy had a long-term contract with HBO, they just did, they just did call the fight. And they yeah. had fun and laughed and just called the fight and how refreshing that was. But when there was a, uh, their A-side on the card, it was just, uh, let's praise this guy and praise this guy. And he was the greatest thing since Joe Lewis. And um, – uh, it was obvious to a lot of people. And, I, you know, I know Max and Jim, known him for a long time, and I like them both very much. And they're both really hyper-articulate, smart guys. Um, but I've, I also worked for HBO for a while and wrote a column for them. And I remember um, uh, every assignment came with uh, a request to remember HBO sensitivities. And everybody who works for HBO, for any giant outlet like that, knows what that means. You know what that means. Well, let's let's spell it out. I mean, again, lean on the fighter that uh, the, has the deal with HBO. So emphasize that, as you just said, or, you know, was there anything beyond that in terms of, you know, helping HBO out with its cause? Well, not for me, but I'm sure at that level there is, you know, okay. we, we always picture it, you know, we tend to picture these uh you know these these conference rooms and these meetings that take place. <laughs> filled room, yeah. exactly right. Where everybody's saying, "Okay, we need this guy to do this. We need this guy to make X number of dollars." But how can you think otherwise? Yeah. It's got to be like that. There's no way it can't be. Did you hear? Well, no, you didn't. You were telling me off uh, the air that you you don't normally listen to podcasts. Teddy Atlas was just on Joe Rogan's podcast, and mm-hmm. and uh, Teddy, another guy who unfortunately when he's on ESPN, particularly when he's matched with Stephen Smith. Uh, the bombacity yeah. kind of yeah. Yeah. Uh, clouds yeah. over the the yep. truth to power that Teddy sometimes says, and he really did spell things out. And I do know that it's a common practice. For example, um, the judges the night before a fight are probably having an amazing dinner yep. on the promoter's dime, yep. and and it's this this uh, for a lack of better description incestuous kind of relationship in boxing between governing body, promoter, management, and fighter that. It's hard to find objectivity, and that's it's it's only hurting the sport. And I think we all know that as fans, because um, and and it's an interesting time right now as uh, things transition from the typical pay per view model, yep, uh, to to the streaming models that are now happening and everything. Um, you know, uh, do you think it's going to get darker now? Because it seems that uh, DAZN and ESPN Plus. I mean, they're going to be the places. Showtime is still in the game. Uh, Certainly, Premier Boxing has their various deals with television and stuff. But it just seems like objectivity is getting harder and harder to find, not only in the actual official decisions, but again, in the broadcasting. Do you think it's getting worse? Actually, I think there's a possibility that all these different players uh, will result in it getting a little better in terms of objectivity. I don't know. It's hard to say how it will shake out, but I know that uh, this market where a lot of little guys come in and the big guys are no longer there to run things themselves, uh, I think it will help. I think it will help. But I should say that um, the broadcasting piece aside, it's oh, boxing has always been corrupt like this. Yeah. <laughs> always, always. Yeah. And we, we've talked about it a little bit before we came on air about uh, the history of boxing and, and how it's always been corrupt. And you know what? Nobody got a shot at Joe Lewis uh, unless they signed a multi-fight deal with uh, Joe Lewis's promoter. 
Mike Jacobs, right? yeah. yeah. Exactly right, which everybody's – which everybody uh, blasted Don King for for many years. This is the way it's always been done. And the mob entirely controlled boxing in the 1940s and 50s, without mm-hmm. a doubt, hands yeah, down. And, and, you, yep. and you read my book and you know that. It's con- entirely controlled by the mafia. Um, so just boxing has always been like this. And um, so, yeah, I don't expect a lot of objectivity. I never really have. It has gotten worse with a, the giant HBO doing so much business. But it might help uh, that we have these new players in, in the game now. It might help a little. Or it, it might not. As as more things get commercialized, <laughs> right? As more things get commercialized and everybody wants to big buck, maybe, maybe it won't. So here's the way you have to look at boxing. And the only way to enjoy boxing is forget all that crap. Forget the ratings. Forget the title belts. Forget the decisions. The only way to enjoy boxing is to look at the purity of what's happening between the fighters in the ring. That's the only way to enjoy boxing. And really, that's the only way to ever have enjoyed it. Agreed. But I, but again, another thing that drives me nuts, and I was telling uh, Michael about this, and also Doug Fisher from Ring, um, and Golden Boy, obviously, I should mention. Um, perhaps it would be better to... Not to stop doing twelve round fights, and I can appreciate. I mean, I I remember well the the glory days of fifteen round fights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I respect the idea that they are thinking of safety, cutting it down to twelve, but making it an even number is just uh, an, a recipe for failure in terms of getting a conclusive decision. Mm-hmm. They should go to either eleven rounds or thirteen rounds, and maybe they're afraid from a superstition standpoint of <sighs> thirteen rounds. And as much as I'd like to see. You know, I mean, 10-round fights are obviously a great, you know, bar in terms of can a fighter go a decent distance. Maybe 11 is right because then if you have an unbalanced amount of rounds, it might, you know, result in more conclusive decisions because I agree with what you're saying. But then still, when you hear them say, oh, it's a draw or even mm-hmm. a majority decision, it's like, hey, man, come on, give me a goddamn winner. a couple things firstly i've never heard that suggestion before uh in all the years i've been uh involved in boxing media so good for you i'd never heard that we should go to odd number rounds that's interesting um secondly i don't even think that would get rid of the controversy around scoring because it's just that scoring a fight is so subjective we're on a lot we're on the same page right you and i are talking right now i'm sure in five minutes we could find 10 decisions that we disagree with with, on each other sure with each other on right totally I'm sure we could. So it's yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing is, uh, boxing is married to tradition, like no other sport. Yes, I can't imagine the outrage <laughs> going to 11 or 13 rounds. And I, frankly, to be honest with you, I'd feel some too because it's just we're so in love with the tradition, and, t- and going outside uh, what we're used to uh, takes away our ability to can compare and contrast. Uh, fighters from sure. different viewers as much as uh, as we can. Right. Interestingly, the and. Other sports don't have that same issue, I think. I just watched um, a couple innings of the baseball game recently, the Yankees playoff game. Mm-hmm. I, was a, I was a huge Yankees fan when I was a kid in the 70s, okay? And I haven't watched two innings of baseball in probably 40 years. So when I was watching this and I saw that the, that the Yankees, there was some uh, uh, play that was reviewed on slow motion uh, by the umps. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know they were doing that in baseball these days. Oh, funny. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, so I was flabbergasted. But baseball fans, who also are a marriage for tradition, right, as much You're as right. boxing fans, I think, um, have accepted this. So uh, I think uh, Larry Merchant told me this once, and he was right, um, that boxing has to evolve and change uh, just like other sports have yes. 
um, to compete with other sports like uh, the three the three point shots and, and uh, three point line in basketball mm-hmm. and apparently the uh, slow uh, slow motion reviews in baseball and really boxing hasn't really done that it's still in the stone age in terms of most of mm-hmm. what the training is right the fighters still skip rope and hit the heavy bag and yeah, yeah. that kind of thing <laughs> and um and in terms of uh, they don't use instant replay like they that would be so easy in like they do in every other sport there's always controversy around whether a cut was caused by a butt or uh uh, a punch sure. or whether something was mm-hmm. a true knockdown and boxing refuses to engage that in most states for reasons we can't understand. But, uh, yeah, so that's interesting, but I would, uh, I think I would, there would be some resistance to going to uh, odd number of rounds, but, uh, it might help things. Well, you know, and I remember, well, you know, again, it sounds like we're around the same age. I'm in my early fifties. I remember yeah, when they, when they went back to, okay, well, I remember when they went back from 15 rounds to 12 rounds. Yep, me too. And yeah, it bummed me out. And in fact, yep. I noticed in your latest issue of Ringside Seat, um, I forget who did it, maybe Nigel, it was like the best welterweights of all time. With the exception of, of Ray Robinson, most of them were modern fighters in that list. And I almost wonder if, kind of like in baseball, the difference between the 154-game season and the, the 162 season, we've got a new demarcation line for eras, and it's like, you know, you can't compare Carmen Basilio to, you know, um, Floyd Mayweather because right. Carmen was fighting 15-round fights the whole time and tough as nails. And, yeah, Floyd's great and everything, but could he do it for three more rounds? I don't know. And especially, well, now he's 40-whatever, but, you know, 41 right, or right, whatever. Right, but, right. yeah, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, yeah, there is kind of a new separation of the eras because of 12-round fighters. Absolutely. And and for and there's a separation because of so many things beyond 12-round eras, too, right? But, uh, Sports medicine, nutrition. Exactly, exactly right. In, in Carmen Basilio's days, I like to remind people of this. Fighters did their road work in dress shoes or work. <laughs> okay? Whenever I see an, a, a still of an old fighter, a fighter from olden days, old timey fighters, right? They're running in dress shoes. I'm just blown away. How did they? How did Joe Lewis fight for so many years running in dress shoes? How did he not have shin splints? No I don't kidding. get it. No kidding. And, and, well, now, and also a lot of those yeah. photos, I feel like are you know publicity Proposed. photo right. ops because right. yeah, you know Jack Dempsey chopping down a tree and right. wearing his dress shoes. It's like okay, come on. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but they didn't have modern running shoes. Right. Right. A lot of these – I wrote a book with Joe Frazier, and, uh, which was in, in 2005, a training book and a, 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 a boxing instructional book. And he insisted on uh, including a passage that fighters should uh, run in work boots. Wow. And when I was growing up, that's how fighters ran in work sure. boots yeah. because they added weight or whatever. And wow, that, that destroys your knees. Just destroys yeah. your knees. Right, and, and fighters today have three hundred dollars running shoes that uh, feels like running on a cloud. <laughs> and there's so many things that change. Even though, even though boxing is in the Stone Age in many ways, in so many ways, uh, so much of the training has changed. Agreed. And that's not always good. It's not always good. Uh, fighters train three times a day now, a ridiculous amount of training, and um, to go twelve rounds, and guys who uh, fought fifteen round fights fought where uh, they train two hours a day. One workout, two hours a day. But the difference was they were fighting much more frequently, right? They were fighting once or twice or three times a month. So when you're fighting that frequently, you don't have to train for three hours a day. I hear you, man. No, I agree. I, uh, I want to get into more of the, uh, the contents of uh, sure. the latest issue of, uh, of Ringside Seat. Uh, great piece on uh, Max Bear and Buddy Bear. 
And, Great. Um, and I and I know you didn't write the piece, but I right. wonder because I, I even asked Mike Cronenberg, your your associate editor, about this. Mm-hmm. Um, had you ever heard regarding uh, Max Jr. Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies that he was Buddy's son and not Max's son? You know what? I didn't know that. It was only a few years well, ago that I discovered that uh, he was related to a bear, but I always assumed it was Max's son. Well, I you know I don't know if it's true or not. Again, hmm. this is something that Bert Sugar used to say to me because I spoke to Max Jr. for when um, Cinderella Man came out. Right, right. And and you know uh, we I wasn't able to interview Ron Howard, but on Sporting News Radio, our morning guy did, and I'm like, you've got to ask Ron why he chose to make Max Senior such a bad guy because every boxing person i know from angelo dundee to you know some of the older historians and stuff are like max was the sweetest guy in the world he was not proud of the fact that he killed men in fact it haunted him you know i mean it was like no he was a human being he's a decent guy and it's like jim braddock doesn't need a bad guy per se society and and his and you know his life was enough of you know something to overcome. You don't need the 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 opponent to be an asshole to, to to make it a great movie. And of course, Ron said, "Well, you know, we're doing a movie. We're not doing a documentary. Right, right. You do need a hero. You need a villain and stuff." Yep. And I, yep. I get that. But I but I spoke to Max and I was telling Bird, and I'm like, "Oh, you know, I talked to Jethro." And he goes, "You know, I think that's Buddy's kid. I don't think that's Max's kid." And I'm that's like, "I've never heard that before." You know what? Uh, that never occurred to me. I didn't know that. But I will say this: they really have no. Uh, resemblance to each other but yeah and if you see those photos in your magazine mm-hmm. of buddy he kind of looks more like max jr yeah so i you know i have a feeling maybe when when max jr finally passes away it'll be actually he was buddy's son but he used yeah, the name you can see from a hollywood standpoint it would sure. you know sure it can't hurt right yeah and yes, max I was great I, I'm, I'm i haven't released it yet on my podcast but i will it was it was a wonderful interview and again on radio i only used highlights so i'm that's why i'm like sitting on like Six or seven really great interviews that I really did back in the early 2000s. And I'm like, you know, this stuff is still good, and we're talking about history and stuff. So, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. I'm, telling, I'm telling my listeners as much as I'm telling you about that to look, to look forward to a future episode. But, good. But, yeah, no, I, I think Fascinating Brothers and another great feature. And I think some of these champions like Max get overlooked. And it's like, no, if you really sit down and look at their careers, and, and man, I've even seen, I'm sure you have as well, Turner Classic Movies has a great, like, one real short of uh, Max sparring. And, oh, mm-hmm. my God, he's an animal. He's, <laughs> I mean, he's a giant Mike Tyson. He's ferocious, incredible power, and, and, it's just, and it's just his pure sparring session. And, he, you know, and again, I'm sure he's playing for the cameras, but, Christ, he looked amazing. Yeah, uh, he was a big puncher, and uh, we really are so lucky to live in this age. Well, there are lots of issues with living in this age, right? But one of them isn't uh, having access to all these great old videos on YouTube. Yes. You, can, you can put in any, but any old fighter's name, you're going to find, unless that name is Harry Greb, you're going to see <laughs> a, a ton of uh, videos on YouTube. And it's just great to, to look back at these old films. And uh, sometimes they match what you're expecting and what writers have written about these old-time guys. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max was a flawed puncher, okay, which happens to be my favorite kind of fighter, by the way. <laughs> uh, a guy who uh, had had very good killer instinct in the ring a lot of times and just looked to knock you out. One of my favorite uh, videos, maybe probably my very favorite video of him to watch is his uh, fight with uh, Max Schmeling, uh, which uh, um, Steve Cronenberg... Michael's brother uh, talked about a lot in his uh, 
in his great feature, Bound by Blood, in the latest episode of Ringside Seat. And you should look that up. Anybody who's listening, go look up uh, Max Bear and Max Schmeling in their wonderful fight uh, in New York. And uh, watch the backhands, the backhand blows that Max gives, that Max Bear gives Max Schmeling toward the end, wow. which were totally illegal. Sure. And he, for which he would have been penalized severely in today's environment. But he gets away with them then and just uh, does clobbers Max Schmeling to the games. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to watch. Yeah, YouTube is a godsend for it all is. these old fights. I Absolutely. remember in the 90s going to pre-YouTube, going to uh, parties, and there would be like a, fil- a boxing film collector. And it really? was like, hey, man, I got – uh, like ten minutes of Charlie Burnley, uh, <laughs> you know, fighting, and we're like, "Oh my God, Charlie yeah. Burnley, yes, please," yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And no, and also, and I know they ran on ESPN Classic. Yep. All of those fights of early television from the '40s and '50s that they have, yep. yeah. and those are amazing. And you know, um, oh God, now I'm blanking on uh, the kid from Michigan that was the college uh, grad that uh, Walter White, that kid Gavilan beat the hell out of. Um, oh, I know you're talking about. Um, yeah, you know, all right, yeah, shame on us both. Um, yep. But yeah, it was like, you know, him fighting, you know, whomever, just another yeah. just another contender. And it was like, oh, great, man, now, now we finally get to see this guy. The college graduate that uh, was a... Uh, was it a... Hey, I'm thinking Art Aragon, or... No, that's not him. No, it wasn't Art Aragon, and I, man, I haven't I haven't uh, seen any Art Aragon fights. I'd love to see that. He's another great one from, from L.A. This is a... Yeah, this was... Oh, God damn. And, I, and it's so funny, because... <laughs> For like five seconds, because I made this Dempsey Tunney documentary, this woman, Romy Kaufman, who was a development person at Paramount, actually asked me, and I mean, believe me, I was so down on the list, but she's like, oh, you know, we're looking for historians for Cinderella Man. Maybe we should talk to you. And I'm like, okay. And I called Bershaw because he's like, yeah, good luck. They're talking to me. They're talking to Angelo (laughs) Dundee. And I'm like, yeah, all right. Thanks for bringing me back to reality. But I was trying to sell them on this fighter. Uh, from Michigan, and again, I'm kicking myself because I'm like, you know, he, it was like Quiz Show meets Rocky because he was he was a college grad and you know boxed in the Naval Academy and stuff, and was this welterweight that they built up, and then finally they matched him against Kid Gavilan. Kid Gavilan destroyed him, yeah. you know, because the yeah, because of the difference in you know skill and everything. But yeah, I love I, I love so seeing that. those fights from the early TV days. Is it um, Chuck Davy? It was Chuck Davy. Nice going, man. Very okay. good, Bill. Well done. I knew eventually one of us would suddenly realize who I'm talking yep. about. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, oh, that's a great story, the Chuck Davies story. Good Lord. Absolutely. So. There, have been a, there have been a few of those over the years. You remember uh, uh, schoolboy Darren Van Horn? Yes. Remember him from the, from the <laughs> 80s, right? Right? There's always <laughs> – There's quite, every year has got their uh, white college-educated uh, boxer. Right, that makes some noise on the way up and gets a big following, and, and then gets crushed against a guy who didn't have, have Holyfield fought a guy like up, right? Holyfield fought a guy like that from St. John's, and I can't. And it was like one of his either very earliest heavyweight fights or very last cruiserweight fights. Well, that was and the I, uh, Irish guy, right? Yes. Seamus McDonough. Is yes, that nice, yeah. very good. <laughs> of course, you know, very good, man. Yeah, yeah. no, you're 100 percent right about that. That's that's very, very funny and, and very, very true. You know, and that's but it is it's interesting. You know, I, I mean, again, that's why I'm fascinated by the history, because, um, again, when boxing was on like three nights a week yeah, man. on television and radio and, and, you know, was such a such a fixture. And it's again, I think, as we were saying before, the sport does need to evolve because, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, it'd be great to get. You know, some of the audience back. And it seems like, God, I got to hand it to Top Rank. Yep. I think they're putting on 
Very good fights on ESPN. I, I, reasonably competitive fights. We'll talk about the Crawford fight in a second. But, God, I thought um, Lomachenko and Linares was wow. a war. Sure. And, and sure. I mean, good Lord, one of, the, one of the best fights I've seen in decades, literally. Yeah, about Lomachenko, he's, he's just on another level. He's just an amazing guy. And I recently had a conversation with my old trainer from the days when I fooled around in boxing. And he's been out of boxing for a long time. But uh, he watched Lomachenko, and uh, his praise was, I'd pay to watch that guy shadow box. <laughs> and that's high praise, you right? Bet. <laughs> yeah, from a boxing vet, absolutely, exactly. and a trainer right. and stuff. Exactly. What weight class were you? Oh, I was. I started as a 14-year-old kid. I was a junior lightweight. Okay. And by the time I ended at about 19, I was a middleweight. Uh, so I had, hadn't gotten my man strength yet when I started. I got <laughs> <laughs> but I pretty much had most of it by the time I was uh, out. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Lomachenko is just uh, on another level. Um, most of these guys are um, – there's some very good fighters around these days. And in, if we – you want to talk about um, comparing uh, contemporary fighters uh, to um, old-timey ones, I always feel like uh, the best fighters, the very best fighters of any era – can always compete in any era if they had to. Could always mm-hmm. compete. Like Pernell Whitaker when he was the best fighter in boxing or, or Julio Cesar Chavez. Uh, when they were like at the top of their game, I think they could compete with any uh, lightweights and welterweights of any era. Right? Agreed. So even if you think and, – and there's a reason to suspect this, that the skill level is not the same as it was in the 70s or 60s or 50s across the board – Right, that there's less skill and craft than there used mm-hmm. to be in those eras. Yep. At the very top, those guys can compete with anybody. It's the it's the guys, the contenders, and and the guys just below the top ten who are are working at a much lower skill level. Agreed. Well, and again, I, I not, not to pick on HBO, but I remember when they were trying to promote Michael Grant, the mm-hmm. giant heavyweight, sure. and like many fighters, converted athlete from another sport. Sometimes right. it works. And sometimes, I mean, Deontay Wilder is a, a current example of that. But I remember um, Bert Sugar, myself, and Bud Schulberg uh, at, at the Garden for, I, I want to say, an Oscar De La Hoya tune-up before the Vargas fight. Or, or no, it wasn't the Vargas fight. It was some other fight. But anyway, Michael Grant's there, and everyone's like, hey, Michael, how you doing? And he walks away. And as soon as he's out of range, I'm like, am I nuts? Or is he a figment of HBO's imagination? <laughs> and Sugar and Schulberg immediately, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, big guy. Much. But you know, he had to th- he has to think about the punches, and I think that's um, yeah. I, I don't think we're getting the dedicated boxing athletes that really do learn the craft from boyhood, like we did in pre- previous eras uh, in t- in today's era. I, I yeah, I think again, it's 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 there's a separation between the truly truly exceptional and uh, and and these guys. But unfortunately, with the multitude of belts and um, lesser. Uh, talent to to challenge and everything yeah we're getting we're getting a lot of uh, pretenders that uh, get to be belt holders for a couple uh, months or whatever or years yeah the proliferation of uh titles is just so ridiculous it's so out of control that's one of the things that i tell people to ignore because it's just, sure. it's just so ridiculous if if everybody's a champion then nobody's a champion it's, <laughs> it's, it's so crazy right but here's the thing um we have we should always remember that this is generational in the 1920s, guys like you and me were saying, oh, these guys couldn't hold a candle to the guys in the 1900s or early, you know, in 1910. Right. Sure, right? sure. In the, the Jim Jeffries that, era. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. 
And in the 50s, they were talking crap about the guys in the 40s and 30s. So this is always the way it's been. It's just always the way it's been. And it's always going to be this way. True. But but we we also can assess fighters using the eye test, right? And a guy like, for example, uh, Boom Boom Mancini, who uh, – who has uh, some space in our uh, current issue. Yes. Every side seat. Yeah, the Mark. Dooku Kim fight. Great feature. Absolutely. That's an excerpt from uh, Mark Kriegel's wonderful book, um, The Good Son. Um, when he, you, you, of course, remember when he was fighting, as I do. And yes. he, he, was, he was seen as kind of a manual laborer. Nothing especially skilled about him, right? A, a forward-moving uh, pressure fighter with a pretty good punch who ate a lot yeah. of punches, right? Yeah. And yet, when I look back on his fights now on YouTube, I see him doing things from a uh, craft perspective that even fighters today don't do. I agree. Yeah, I hear what you said. He was considered, again, it's it's a face-first puncher, but he had more skill than a lot of guys I see today. Again, not not the top guys. No, not guys like Golovkin or Canelo um, or Lomachenko or uh, the other top guys we're going to speak of and have spoken of. But... (laughs) Um, compared to a lot of guys today, he was he's goddamn skilled. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that way about Jerry Quarry watching YouTube Absolutely. fights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, if if Jerry Quarry were just 10 years younger, he would have destroyed in the 80s. He absolutely would. And it would have been interesting to see him fight Larry Holmes. Uh, but again, yeah. in those in that multi-belt era that started as badly as it did in the 80s, it's like, yeah, Jerry Quarry probably would have been up there and stuff. And yeah, no, I, I hear you. And you're 100% right about Mancini. Yeah, God, I, and now that you say that, I think back to his uh, Livingston Bramble fights that he lost. But my God, was you know it, they were good fights, they were competitive fights, and you know, again, great combination puncher that I, I think people absolutely. forget about. And, and a yeah, like you say, always yeah. pressure. Yeah, great pressure fighter. Absolutely, my God. So it, it's, so it seems to me, and this is <laughs> probably I'm full of crap, but it seems to me that a lot more emphasis is placed on conditioning. And we talked about guys working out three times a day. They got special athletic trainers and nutritionists. Guys working out three times a day from a, working on their fitness. Um, when they should be spending that time on the craft, right? Yeah. yeah. Just learn how to fight better, and you won't have to be able to go thirty rounds if you just you know learn how to slip, learn how to well, pop and weave. Let's right. look. Let's start talking about, well, first of all, Crawford's uh, last fight. You know, mm-hmm. hey, show a, show a nice showcase win. Uh, and I'm even forgetting, is it Benvenides? I forget what it does. Uh, right, Benvenides, right. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, good hand speed, and certainly early on, seemed to be countering with, with equal speed and connecting. Uh, it, it was telling when <laughs> the sideline reporter was talking to uh, – uh, Crawford's trainer, and he's like, "What about his? What about his power?" And he's like, "This kid has no power." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that's how the fight was made and matched in terms of this guy's <laughs> going to give you rounds, but don't worry, he's not going to hurt you and everything. And I'm sure that's why they said yes. But you know, hey, great, great showy uppercut knockdown to lead to the stoppage yep. uh, with the second knockdown. I mean, no, a nice little highlight, real uh, moment for for Crawford. I kind of think Lomachenko's a better fighter, though. And, I, oh, and, I, and again, they're two different weight classes. I think Lomachenko, by the way, and I want your opinion, I think he's found his ceiling at lightweight. I don't think he should move up in weight. Uh, first, I'll say that uh, we're, we're so enamored of uh, and, and invested in pound-for-pound stuff these days. And the reason for that is because all the divisions are so watered down. <laughs> Great. That's exactly why we're so uh, taken with these different pound-for-pound uh, pound discussions. Um, but anyway, uh, I th- also think Lomachenko is a much better fighter than uh, Crawford is. And um, 
I tend to agree also that uh, he might have hit his ceiling at lightweight. The, uh, his last fight was very difficult, and, and not just because um, the quality of his opponent was very high. Lenares is a very good fighter. Yeah. And in fact, he performed better than I thought he would against Lomachenko. Me too. Yes. He's enormously. He's a guy who's enormously skilled, but seems to have seems to have some uh, self confidence issues. He fights in a manner that would suggest that he's not as good as he is. He, but he's got the tools to be a great, great fighter. But I don't think he entirely believes it for some reason. I don't know why that is. That's just the impression I get from him. But um, but he gave Lomachenko a hell of a fight. But Lomachenko is on a different level, I think, than all these guys. The things he does in the ring are Willie Pep esque, and he's a really good puncher. And so we never asked uh, Willie Pep to fight Shigure Robinson. Although let me let me retract that. Willie uh, Pep and Ray Robinson fought as featherweight amateurs in the Golden Gloves. Wow, I did not remember that. That's fantastic. That's in the late thirties, and Robinson won a decision. At any rate, we didn't ask the uh, mature right. featherweight Willie Pep to fight Ray Robinson, who was a welterweight and middleweight as pros, right? So we really shouldn't expect Lomachenko to fight uh, bigger guys who are welterweights. So I agree with your assessment that Lomachenko probably has um, hit the ceiling out lightweight, uh, but man, he's going to be a hell of a lightweight, and he's, uh, he is the man to beat in boxing. I don't see anybody uh, who does <clears throat> anything in boxing that uh, Lomachenko does. Here's a, here's the thing, uh, for me at least, uh, a good corollary. My favorite fighter for a long time, after George Foreman had retired, was Julio Cesar Chavez. Sure. I watched him all the time, and I said, "My God, I'd never seen I've never seen anybody as good as this guy is." And I didn't care that Pernell Whitaker beat him and, and got robbed and got his. I hear you. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't care. I didn't care because I like a guy who can knock him off or out. Okay, <laughs> and Chavez could knock a guy out where yep. Whitaker really couldn't at welterweight. Right, he was a good no, puncher, absolutely, light, not yeah, really yeah, yeah. So I preferred Chavez, even though Whitaker pretty much beat his ass, right? So a long time, I felt like Chavez is the best fighter I've ever seen in my era, right? Mm-hmm. And then I saw Roy Jones fight, and it was a revelation. I said, "This guy, this guy has done thing I've never seen anybody fight. Forget about just my era. He does things in the ring that I've never seen any fighter do ever." And for a long time, Roy Jones was the epitome of an. An extraordinary athlete who was a boxer who could just get away with everything. I kind of feel that way about Lomachenko. The stuff he does in the ring is otherworldly. <laughs> it just is. And uh, he's a much better. Terrence Crawford's a good fighter, and there are lots of good fighters. Great fighter. Spence is a good fighter, right? And uh, uh, Thurman's a good fighter. And a lot of the, the welterweight sure. division is stacked, right? As it always is, which was the point of Wally Matthews' excellent piece. The welterweight division is, is um, frequently. Among the two or three best divisions in boxing. Agreed. Um, but uh, uh, Lomachenko is, is just something else. He's just uh, uh, head and shoulders above everybody, as far as I can tell, in terms of what he does in the ring. I want to talk to you about Roy Jones for a second because sure. I, I, from an offensive standpoint, hand speed, unbelievable. Uh, when he had his legs, he was incredible. As soon as he lost his legs, his defense, his poorest defense, obviously betrayed him. And I, at least my opinion. And uh, and also, it did bother me that we never got a Jones Calzaghe fight. Yep. Uh, he's the first one until that later. comes to mind. Right. Who else? Until later, right? We got that fight eventually. Oh, yeah. excuse me. You see, you shame on me. That? I forgot that we finally got it. No, I think you th- you might be thinking of Darius Mikolajewski. Yes, and that, that that was another one. Yes, indeed, absolutely. Right. Well, and and that's the thing. And it just seemed like Roy was too selective. In fact, when he beat John Ruiz, yep, I was working at Sporting News Radio. And, and, you know, the laymen were all like, wow, this is quite an accomplishment. I'm like, it's an accomplishment 
but don't capitalize that A because this is Roy Jones beating the least talented heavyweight titleist out there. Right. right. And again, it's an accomplishment, but you know, uh, he's not ready to go full fledged and, and fight Lennox Lewis. And also let's not forget Mickey Walker obviously did a little damage in the heavyweight division as a middleweight and stuff. So <laughs> there were those kind of fighters. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm going to cough. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, but uh, yeah, that was the thing about Roy was he was a little too selective with his yep. opponents. Got yep. to wait 20 years to fight Bernard Hopkins after yep. their first chess match was really ridiculous. Yep. And I got to admit, kind of in that way that Tommy Hearns got his due, even though he didn't get the decision against yep. Leonard. I was kind of happy that that Hopkins, uh, you know, was able to uh, to beat Roy in the uh, in the rematch. Yeah, that's a really good uh, corollary. Um, you're absolutely right. And the weird thing about Roy was that um, he fought guys who were non-entities, and HBO let him. Yes, right? they paid did. him a lot of money. Paid him a yes, lot of money to fight non-entities. Never really forced him to fight anybody like Mikulszewski, or and I know I'm mispronouncing his name. I'm certain of it. Um, yeah, I think Mikulszewski is. I remember, but that was a long time okay. ago. But go on. Uh, and and other guys. And uh, Roy's excuse was always that he didn't want to end up like Gerald McClellan, right? Yeah, no. And, so, and I I interviewed and and watched Gerald McClellan many of uh, Gerald McClellan's fights, right. so I understand. Right. So we all get that, but ironically, he ends up fighting way past the time. When yes. his skills uh, made him an excellent fighter and got knocked out a shitload of times and, and put himself in uh, real danger of ending up like Gerald McClellan. Because like you said, once uh, his legs and speed pretty much abandoned him, then he got that big old uh, lights out button on his face. And all anybody had to do was touch that button and he was out. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, Glenn uh, Johnson was never a big puncher. He just caught Roy in the right spot and Roy went to sleep. And, uh, and, we, and, and Magic Man, too. I'm forgetting his name. Exactly. Antonio Tarver. Right? Yeah, Antonio Tarver, of course. Yes, yes. Right. And when you're getting knocked out by Enzo Maccarelli, Maccarinelli, wow, <laughs> it's really time to go. <laughs> but, but hey, I could, never, I could never fault a fighter for fighting um, way longer than he should have, not only for the money, because nobody ever has enough money, right? Everybody right. believes that you never have enough money. Everybody says, oh, he made a million dollars. How much does he need? More, more. Everybody needs more, right? But also – on a, in a broader way, in a more important way, to be the best in the world at something and just walk away from it, how could you? How could anybody? Agreed. No, I'm not, and you're yeah. right. And the majority of fighters make that choice and sure. fight longer than they should. Yep. Ali, I mean, you know, certainly Holyfield, Tyson, God, you know, another embarrassing loss. Brian Nielsen, really? Exactly. You know, I mean, well, stuff like that. Yeah, no, I agree, right. man. You're right. And and totally. And uh, And in fact, I... <laughs> I, I, like a fool, picked Tony over Roy Jones uh, at super middleweight for their title fight. And uh, the sports radio guys made me apologize to, to Roy on the air. You know what? I remember going into that fight, and I couldn't decide who would win. And I felt – I remember very – I remember this very clearly thinking, you know what? Roy's great, but he hasn't done anything yet. He right. Hasn't really, he's not battle-hardened yet the way Tony was. I picked Tony too going into it. I picked Tony too going into it. There or I'm, go, I'm sorry. Yeah, I picked Tony. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, you weren't alone. You weren't alone. <laughs> no, good stuff, man. All right. So coming up, uh, man, I hate both of these guys. I mean, that's the thing. I have no, I have no uh, problem saying, you know, the fighters I like and dislike: Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. I, I'm so disappointed in Deontay Wilder. I get it. You're following the script. You got to be a tough guy at the press conferences, man. Don't you miss those days? If you see the newsreels, you don't see Joe Lewis getting into Schmeling's face. 
after losing as embarrassingly as he did in the first fight and everything. I mean, you know, I mean, these guys said, you know, whatever. But, I mean, now it's got to be a brawl at the, at the press conference. They're both loose cannons. Um, they have no skill. I, 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 I and, and please correct me, but Tyson Fury's win against Vladimir Klitschko was so infuriating because clearly uh, Klitschko's head, head was not in the fight. He wasn't doing anything, and that's the only reason why Tyson Fury, on his tippy toes, on his little pity pat punches, was able to outpoint him. And and truly, ever since then, I, I I'm sorry. I understand the guy does have some some issues, and and I certainly wish him no ill from that standpoint. But man, that guy talks a lot of shit for a lot of <laughs> very little talent, other than you know being a being a decent puncher. But yet, I haven't seen him really be in there with a world class opponent yet to see how well you know he does when he's getting hit back and again that's the only thing i think this this fight is is two power punchers with very little skill hmm. yeah a couple of things um <laughs> yeah i gave you a lot there oh go on yeah, that's okay uh, tyson fury is an interesting guy uh and uh, the, the way they're selling this fight um it should be kind of expected uh i'll take a moment to um say that uh bobby cassidy wrote about uh, this, he wrote a preview of this fight that's in the current issue of uh, Ringside Seat called The Sound and the Fury. And it's largely about uh, how uh, unlikely it is that the actual fight will live up to, um, not the hype, but the entertainment value that's evident at the press conferences. Because both guys are are big talkers and talk a lot of shit. And um, they have that in common, but they also have in common that they're not especially skilled. Now, first, let me talk about Wilder a little bit, if I may. when he first started uh, um, fighting at a high level, um, I I don't I don't mind him, and I don't I don't necessarily dislike guys for the personalities they assume on a level on a, on the stage because they want to get paid. And in in this environment today, I think, although I enjoy guys who are just gentlemen and don't hit each other at press conferences, room for everybody under the tent. I think, <laughs> right. It would be nice if they were all gentlemen and, you know, like everybody was gracious and that kind of thing. But those days are gone. Muhammad yeah. Ali ruined that for everybody. Okay? That, that's just the truth. Ali introduced that kind of shit to sports, not just boxing. Um, and nobody did that before him, like the way he did it. Okay? Muhammad yeah, Ali did yeah. that. So, and so everybody's replicating that because they want to get paid. So I, I kind of get that. Uh, but there are guys who are low-key, too. Um, so we should enjoy them when, when they're um, doing their press conferences and everybody's cool. Uh, I think uh, Deontay Wilder has improved since the um, performances that made me hate him. Uh, he got himself <laughs> under control a little bit. He was the most unskilled um, heavyweight quote-unquote champion I had seen in a long time. The way he – not only just not just that he's wild because I'm a George Foreman guy and original George Foreman was wilder than anybody, right? Sure, sure. Um, and I loved him. But Wilder's uh, wildness, if you will, um, was worse than even – you can't even describe him as an amateur because there are a lot of amateurs who are better boxers than Deontay Wilder. A lot. Absolutely. Yes. Right? Not even like world-class amateurs who know how to box better than Deontay Wilder. <laughs> but that said, he's gotten better his last few fights, and I think that's largely the result of having been co-trained uh, by Mark Breland, who was probably the best amateur boxer ever. And that's going all the way back to Laszlo Papp and those guys who were just incredible athletes. I hear you. 
and Teofilo Stevenson. Mark Breland was just an amazing amateur. Agreed. And he had the same, even though it was a welterweight, had the same has the same body type as Wilder. Wilder's just a blown up version, a heavyweight version. And he's gotten Wilder very good at setting guys up with the jab and then dropping in that great right hand. And then give Wilder this. The guy can punch. Oh, absolutely. His, his technique sucks a lot of the time, but he can punch and his technique is getting better. And he's got the ability and the quickness and the speed to catch guys coming in with the right hand, not just um, at long range. So um, he's gotten better. So I can't I can't brag on him as much as I'd like to and as much as I used to. For example, uh, when he beat Chris Ariola and was just clubbing him on the head at the end yes. of the fight like an MMA guy, which is yeah. reprehensible, right? Yes. So his, his technique has gotten better, and I suspect it will continue to improve because if nothing else, he'll fight anybody. He wants big money, and he's fighting everybody that they put in front of him. Now, there's some shit in front of him, mostly, right? <laughs> But he's not turning fights down. He's fighting the best guys that he can, I think. Now, that brings us to Tyson Fury, who's also a bit of a whack job, and he's got emotional issues. But every every friggin' fighter has emotional issues, or he wouldn't be fighters. He wears them on his sleeve, I think, more than most fighters do. And that's part of his, in a way, part of his charm. He's a mess. Uh, um, you made an interesting point about um, his fight with Klitschko, which, which absolutely was infuriating to watch, and possibly the dullest heavyweight title fight since... Um, Oliver McCall and Frank Bruno, which is saying quite a lot. Okay? Yeah. But I have my issues with Klitschko, but I think the reason that Klitschko would not throw any punches, uh, because Fury's weird style, coupled with uh, Klitschko's uh, natural disinclination for getting hit, resulted in him keeping his hands to himself. It wasn't all Klitschko. Who, who wasn't there, I think, mentally. He's a guy who doesn't like to throw punches to begin with because he doesn't like opening himself up to getting hit back, right? But I think uh, Fury's style, such as it is, made Klitschko, it kept him off balance. More than he, he never felt like he was in a position to throw punches. So here's a guy who doesn't like to punch to begin with. He likes to you know, throw a jab and clinch because he's afraid of getting hit. Against a guy who is why, who's, his style is so herky-jerky and weird for a big guy, and he won't let you get set, and that reduces the chance even further that Klitschko could throw a good punch. You know what I'm saying? I do. No, I like your assessment. Absolutely, man. No, so Fury, I think, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was just going to agree more. Please. <laughs> so Fury's got a weird style, um, and I think for a giant white guy, he's fairly athletic. We don't really see that in the ring, but for a, a big, fat white guy, he's kind of athletic, and he does enough things awkwardly and incorrectly in the ring and enough things correctly to handcuff some guys Now the two guys he's fought in his comeback are just awful oh that's just for timing i think we all know that that that's him just kind of getting the ring rust off i mean that you know at least i that was my assessment of those two yeah guys. i agree and it's probably it was almost certainly uh best for him to go 10 rounds with the second of those guys just to get mm-hmm. feedback under him right yeah uh, and also credit him for going after wilder a lot of guys in this position say, you know what, let's take our time. Let's have a few more fights. He says, screw it. Let me fight Wilder. You see, now, to me, that says two things. One, that he does, you know, that he's really in it for the quick money grab. Could and, be. And, and that's why. I, I, don't, I mean, his reluctance to fight after beating Klitschko, I thought, spoke volumes. And again, we get the, you know, uh, and man, I sound like an asshole because there are people with genuine emotional problems. But yeah, like I, you sound like you're a little suspect as well. I don't know, man. I just didn't buy it. I, I really felt like 
boy, this guy, you know, and again, it's his crazy lifestyle. Maybe that had a lot to do with it. Maybe there's addiction or something that's involved in that. I have no idea. But it just, again, as a layman, I'm like, I'm just not buying it. I think this guy just doesn't want to fight. Once he was happy to do all the endorsement deals that came with becoming the new heavyweight champion. I'm sure he made a lot of money in in England uh, doing, uh, you know, big advertisements and things. And yeah, like I said, I just think that this path towards Wilder is, okay, big money grab, great, see ya. And, and uh, you know, especially if he loses, I'm sure he's going to retire. I'm sure he's hmm. going to retire. Interesting. I don't really see it that way. I think he's – I hope I, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you hope I'm right that he's got really emotional issues? <laughs> no, the, or no, more so that he, he you know, if he, if he, he does wants lose, wants yeah. to be here because everything you've said is absolutely true and it is his unorthodox style that I think makes him a, a, a challenging fight, you know, for, for everyone that he has to fight and everything. So, no, right. go on. Right, uh, I think I do think he's got uh, real mental, emotional issues. Right, I think again a lot of fighters do, and he just is more uh, willing to uh, wear them on his sleeve, as it were, than a lot of guys are. Right, and they're maybe more severe than some guys are. Um, but also, I think that he's also one of these guys who um, can get only inspired by the chase rather than the defense, right? A lot of these guys will tell you that too, that uh, they're at their best when they're going for the title. And even in everyday life, we all need something to strive toward. And after he won the title, um, all this money and adulation and fame, that breaks a lot of guys. That breaks a lot of guys. Yeah, Buster Douglas, you know, sure, sure. Look at at Mike Tyson. Certainly Mike Tyson. you're, You're 22 years old. You never had a Two pennies are rubbed together your whole life, and suddenly you're making $20, $25 million a fight? How does that not break you, yeah. right? So, um, And suddenly he's got all access to coke and all kinds of money and drugs that he never had access to before. He goes crazy, and you put that on top of existing emotional issues? I think it's a real good chance that he just uh, broke apart right after winning the title. And plus he was uh, you know, he's referred to as a gypsy, and there's lots of discrimination in, uh, in, in Europe. Um it's not a good connotation, right? Right, right. So I think that uh, uh, his anguish is real. I think that uh, if he would be Wilder, I think he, there's a good chance he might retire, but not because it was just a quick money grab necessarily, but because he would see the same, um, he would experience the same kind of letdown, emotional letdown that he did after beating Klitschko. Fortunately for him, he was not going to be Wilder. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> so maybe a little. It will uh, inspire him and keep him focused and motivated to continue to fight um, and maybe beat somebody else. I don't know, but uh, so that's a way of revealing my hand to say I don't think I don't believe he'll beat Wilder, and uh, I don't I wouldn't I don't think I'd like to beat Tyson Fury. I think there's a lot going on in that brain that is not good or fun, and I think the only reason he, he appears to be having fun now is because he can concentrate on this big goal that he wants to achieve, and when he doesn't. It's going to be time for a really nasty meltdown again, and that's just the way his mind works. No, I appreciate that analysis, man. I, um, w- w- what about Luis Ortiz? I really hope that that's not the last we'll see of Luis Ortiz uh, because I thought that fight with Wilder I- – I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. I mean, being a uh-huh. – he's got fast hands, big dude, can clearly take a punch. Again, Wilder you know, hit him with a Mack truck uh, right, but I also think – uh, the referee and and timekeepers kind of helped uh, Wilder out in between rounds after that big round that Ortiz had in his loss to uh, to uh, Wilder. Well, I think Ortiz will keep fighting because what else is he going to do, right? He's sixty eight years old, but what else is he going to do? At- 
<laughs> he's yeah. It's an open secret that he's way older than his uh, thirty nine or whatever that he claims to be. Yeah, he's much older than that. He came over and got started way too late, like a lot of Cuban fighters do. Uh, but he's a very skilled guy. He may be the most skilled guy in the heavyweight division, right? I, I'm glad you said that because that's yeah. that's that was my sense watching his fights. Go on. Yeah, and I would have guessed anything that he was on his way to getting Wilder out of there in their fight. And by the way, that speaks volumes about Wilder. Agreed. That he, that Agreed. he survived uh, Ortiz's uh, rush there. Um, the first half of the fight was awful, and I hated both of them for making me endure it because it was just a terrible <laughs> heavyweight fight. But the second half heated up, and when Ortiz did his damnedest to get Wilder out of there and failed, you had to know that Wilder's right hand was going to uh, put things right for him, and they did. And I don't blame him for a bit for sitting down after taking a couple of those right hands. Again, Wilder can punch, and when um, he's got you, he might flail like a little girl to get you out of there, but he's going to get you out of there. But uh, Ortiz is a very skilled guy, but I don't see him beating any top guys, but he's going to keep fighting because what else is he going to do? He's got to do something to make money. He can't just walk into some company somewhere and make $80,000 a year doing what he wants to do. It's like all fighters. When you spend your whole – dedicate your entire life to something, and then when you're not an athlete anymore, what are you supposed to do? You have no skills Does other, he than, have, other than that. Who's his promoter? Because obviously the problem is you know, I, I could see Joshua's people and, and uh, mm-hmm. other decent heavyweights going, I don't want any part of Luis Ortiz. Yeah. He's too talented. Yeah, I could see that. They got to wait a few more years until he's exactly when he's fifty. Until he's officially Medicare age as eligible. <laughs> but yeah, he'll beat some guys. But he's just, you know, at his age and uh, with his uh, skill set, he's going to beat a couple of guys. But he's not going to beat anybody. Uh, I think at the, at the top level, and certainly not uh, Anthony Joshua, in my view. I agree, and I, it, it suggests to me that you think Joshua's like the best right now at heavyweight. It's interesting that, interesting that you say that because for a while I did. I loved Anthony Joshua because, as I said earlier, big flawed punches are my favorite type of fighter, right? <laughs> and earlier in uh, Joshua's career, the guy's a Mack truck. He's just huge. He's a, yeah. a, an extraordinary physical specimen. Mm-hmm. And earlier in his career, um, he walked straight to opponents and punched them until they were unconscious. And that was it. And it didn't, nobody didn't take many punches either. Right, just an enormous physical specimen who just bludgeoned guys, and that's a great kind of fighter to be, right? If you knock out everybody in terms of your long-term health too, if you knock out guys before they can hit you, you're gonna have your you're gonna you're gonna have your brains intact. Yeah, time, yeah. but you're just not getting punished a lot, right? Sure. Um, but I think his um, current trainer is trying to uh, round him a bit in the way that Lennox Lewis was rounded. So that he can fight different styles and be a patient puncher. And I think that's going to be his, his undoing, unfortunately. Uh, I think Joshua against Povetkin, for example, Joshua got nailed and staggered in the first, one of the first couple of rounds. Yeah. Um, and um, hasn't looked good, I think, in several fights. And, uh, my, and in my view, that's because he's on the – even against Klitschko – was, even that fight was much harder than it had to be because he's his trainer has got him sitting back and jabbing guys uh, and trying to box and um, wearing guys out instead of just walking in there, throwing punches, and getting guys out. And I, I granted, that's not going to work for everybody, right? But everybody right. doesn't have this guy's skills or his tools, rather. Not even his skills, his tools. Not right. everybody has his body or his temperament. Yeah. The guy's a yeah. born puncher. He's a born puncher. And by born – you can encompass and include in that description, maybe chemically enhanced, 
Okay? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Either way, the guy is huge and a born puncher, and he gets guys out if he just walks straight forward and punches. And so I think his current trainer is trying to get him out of that mold. Lennox Lewis was a, was a very good heavyweight champion because against the right guys, he punched, and against the guys he couldn't knock out, he boxed. Yes. Right? He boxed yes. Evander Holyfield. He, and Andrew Galati just walked forward and punched him out of the ring, okay? Yep. And that served him well. I don't think Anthony, Anthony Joshua has to do that. He can be the guy who knocks out everybody, but he's just got to fight like that. He should have never uh, gotten staggered by a guy like Pavetkin. Pavetkin and Joshua should have looked like Foreman Frazier. Funny. Yes. There was, there was never a point in George Foreman's career when somebody said, at least his first career, when somebody said, you need to box more. Why? I hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you've got you're right. everything you need to walk in there and blast these guys out of the ring. And that's what I think Anthony Joshua should be doing. Um, but his trainer uh, isn't having him do that. And, and so I think at a, there was a time when I when I thought that if he and uh, Wilder fought, he blows Wilder out of the ring. There's not even a contest there. But if he stands back and boxes him and jabs Wilder, that's a, in my mind, that's a gimme fight. It's, a, it's, an, it's an even fight. Interesting. Because Very been, interesting. If he sits back, and the same thing with the Klitschko fight. He's sitting back and jabbing Klitschko, which is Klitschko's fight. Every time he stepped forward and just threw punches, Klitschko shit his pants and went down. <laughs> because that's Vladimir Klitschko. He's got this, this inclination of getting to getting hit, right? And because Joshua was a, a great puncher. But he got knocked down because he's sitting on the outside fencing with this guy who won 70 fights almost fencing people. That's what he sure. does. You can't fence with a fencer. You got, you got to go in and get inside and throw your punches. And so that's kind of the fighter he's becoming. So if he fights that way against Deontay Wilder, which I think he probably will at this point, it's a 50-50 fight. But if he fights the way uh, young George Foreman used to fight, where he just has complete self-belief in his power and just goes in there and says, I'm going to hit you before you hit me, and I'm going to hit you harder than you hit me. So I'm just going to knock your ass out. He could beat everybody for 10 years. He's that kind of puncher. But I, I suspect that he's, he's not getting the right training. But that's what do I know? Hey, man. No, I like it. I, I, <laughs> I like your point of view. This is the kind of thing people can find, not only from yourself, but your other contributors at Ringside Seat. Uh, and I do. I love this combination of uh, – and, and I know a lot of the publications do this as well. They look back at, at the history. But I really think you guys are onto something with your approach. You're five issues in. You also have a collection – of uh, the the best stuff from your first four issues, right? That it's out yep. there. Well, it's not. I wouldn't say it's our best stuff. It's a very it's very good stuff because all of our writers are great. But it's the stuff that would work best in a review. Okay. Okay. In an, in an annual piece, well, we've got such great writers, most of whom used to write for the Ring Magazine. Okay. And um, not long after Golden Boy came in, we all got shit canned, and um, we eventually arrived with uh, Michael Cronenberg's. Uh, the great Michael Cronenberg's uh, support to arrive at uh, Ringside Seat Magazine. So Nigel Collins and Don Stradley and Bobby Cassidy and Eric Raskin are all names that – and myself – are all names that you would recognize from uh, the glory days at Ring Magazine under Nigel Collins' editorship, which I you think bet. in my view, and I know I'm biased, was the best Ring Magazine there ever was. I but would agree. In addition to those guys, we get – Guys like Wally Matthews, who's been a, a great New York sports writer for 30 or 40 years. Yep. And um, again, we got book reviews. We got Ed Groover, who's a very good sports writer. He's written five or six books on football and other sports. And uh, and again, a, a, 
book excerpt from uh, Mark Kriegel, who's another great writer who you guys will see on who you guys see on ESPN all the time. Was a great writer writing for New York Daily News way before, 20, 30 years ago before he was uh, on ESPN, um, uh, ESPN calling the fight. So we've got some really great writers um, who have a great appreciation for and knowledge of uh, the history of boxing. Um, and it's and it's going to be this way every issue. That's excellent. So uh, the place to get it, ringsideseat.com? Uh, ringsideseatmag.com. Uh, Got it. The uh, fifth issue, as you mentioned before. And plus, uh, there's the annual, the 2018 annual. Uh, that's out there they can get to. And, uh, man, we're really proud of this. This is really good stuff. There's not, there's not uh, in my view, and I read a lot of boxing, of course, there's, there's no... There's no site or magazine uh, that's comparable to what we're doing at our ringside seat. It just isn't. And not only the writing, but Michael Cronenberg's graphics and design and layout are yes. just gorgeous. You can just look at this thing. I don't care if you can't read English. You'll, <laughs> you'll enjoy looking at this because it's just beautiful. The photos and the links to videos um, that we talked about earlier, uh, the graphics are just gorgeous. Michael's an incredible designer, and the whole thing is just gorgeous from top to bottom. I, I know his work from uh, both uh, the comic book world and also his wonderful work with uh, Eddie Muller in uh, Film yep. Noir. Another great piece, uh, Eddie Muller's dad. Oh, uh, yep. Really amazing. Uh, you know, that's what I've been seeking out is, uh, especially at Amazon, books by old uh, fight columnists or sports columnists in general that had a concentration of boxing. And, yeah, there's the W.C. Hines and people like oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. But but I found a guy, a Minnesota guy, that uh, was actually even with the old NBA, the what what became the WBA, uh, and uh, you know he's he's writing these very interesting essays about where boxing was going at the beginnings of the television era. Hmm. So that's kind of you know it is those kinds of older sports writers that I seek out and and am interested in in their views. And he was even talking about uh, how they would get away with. Um, Hometown decisions before television. Oh yeah, because the cameras weren't there. Sure, and so so it was a it was an outrage for about two weeks in the newspapers, and then you know we moved on to other sports and other stories. Yep. So they they would die down. You know the the anger would die down. Right. Right. Didn't have the sc- scrutiny that came with television. Absolutely right. In the old boxing days, uh, the managers uh, would just pay off the boxing writers, and I mean all the boxing writers. Sure. To give their guy a good write up because who was there to dispute it? Nobody. <laughs> the people in the arena at the time, which is yep. a much smaller number of people than the people who are reading the newspaper account the next day. Yep. It was very, very interesting. No, that's the kind of stuff I look for. So, again, no, you're right. Uh, Michael's, uh, I think, graphics do elevate it, but really uh, both hand-in-hand hand with your guys' coverage. I agree with you about that was Ring at its best. That's when I was reading Ring, was when Nigel and you guys were all doing your stuff. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad you guys are still together. And I hope that this is uh, a venture that will uh, be able to continue and cover the sport as, as well as you guys always have. And I uh, look forward to talking to uh, some of your other contributors like Nigel and, and the sure. like Absolutely. In, in, in future episodes. And, yeah, man, no, this is, like I said, hand in hand with uh, the history of boxing. I, I, I want to hear from people that are uh, covering it a lot deeper uh, today and have a good handle on what's going on. And, again, without that uh, biased opinion that unfortunately we're starting to get from our media outlets and certainly the promoters and, and the management, uh, they're always only going to support their guys. So, no, really a real pleasure, Bill. I hope you'll uh, come back in the future. I would love and- Thank you. Excellent, man. And, uh, yeah, thanks for your, your points of view. And certainly in the months ahead, we got a lot of boxing to talk about. We sure will. I'd be happy to be on again. Thanks very much, John, for having me. 
A real pleasure to have the first of hopefully many conversations with Bill Detloff in the near future. Again, go to ringsideseatmag.com. You can pick up their 2018 review book and uh, also the first uh, five issues of Ringside Seat that they've released so far. It's a fantastic magazine. Uh, The covers are eye-catching, beautiful art, and again, unbelievable contributors talking about the past and present of boxing. Mark Kriegel, Mike Cronenberg, Eddie Muller, Nigel Collins, uh, Bill Detloff, of course, the editor-in-chief that we just talked to, Eric Raskin, so many wonderful people, Robert Cassidy as well. All great writers, really know their stuff, and are uh, really contributing incredible stuff. Ivan Goldman, who uh, took over uh, Boxing Illustrated uh, after uh, Burt left the magazine. So really cool people involved with Ringside Seat. I can't recommend it enough. And uh, I will be talking more to their contributors and others in the weeks ahead here on the Big Bout Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you'll let a friend know about the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. Please, if you have any questions or comments about the show, uh, this is part of the Word Balloon Network. You can reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Tell me what you like about the show. We're going to be leaning, as I say, into history as much as the current scene in our conversations here on the Big Bout Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Big Bout Podcast is a copyrighted feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.